Hey, this is Beth Nelson. I serve as the lead pastor at Prairie Heights Community Church, and this is our podcast. I wanted to thank you for listening today. I hope this motivates you. I hope it builds your faith and helps you connect with Christ and a church family at Prairie Heights. Enjoy the message. Yeah, you can applaud for that. That's awesome. (laughs) Not only for running for God's glory, I'd applaud anybody who could run 26.2 miles, right? Hey, it's great to be back with you. I love coming on back-to-back weekends. Welcome to Prairie Heights. And uh, we're uh, in part two today of just a two-part series called Perseverance. That's why the idea of running a marathon Persevering is so, it's such a great fit. Well, not everyone makes good choices about what they're pursuing at the finish line. In fact, I found out just recently that every year, this has been going on for 100 years, it's in England, and they get hundreds of people together and they go to a a really steep, rugged mountainside and they take a big round piece of cheese and they roll it down and it just keeps going down this mountainside and hundreds of people chase it to try to win that big piece of cheese. (laughs) You know, I used to think that you had to have your head examined to run 26.2 miles, but that's crazier, right? I mean, for what, a big piece of cheese? and having the distinction of breaking all your arms and legs while doing it. Amazing. Not everyone makes great choices when it comes to persevering. Now, those people doing that, there's no question about their desire to persevere, but you have to wonder about their desire to live. So, with that in mind, let me show you from God's word what Paul has to say about a prize that is the ultimate. It is so worthwhile as we run this race with perseverance. In Philippians chapter three, verses 12 through 14, Paul says this, I don't mean to say that I've already achieved these things or that I've already reached perfection, but I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. Quick comment here. What Paul's talking about is that you can't earn or work your way to heaven, but it's the change that Jesus makes in us when he possesses our life. And now the idea is to become more like him because he goes on and he says, no, dear brothers and sisters, I've not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God through Christ Jesus is calling us. Paul was persevering for the finish line. The finish line, heaven. At that point, he'd be perfect in heaven, just like Jesus. Christ followers get to go to heaven. In the meantime, our purpose is to become like him, to serve him. Back in the early 1900s, A couple by the name of the Morrisons, Henry and his wife, were serving as missionaries in Africa. You got to remember, this is in the early 1900s, and so going back and forth from the U.S. to Africa was no easy trip. They were on a ship, and it was going to take several weeks when they left Africa to return to the U.S. to retire. They had actually been serving God 
for over 25 years since the last time they had been back in their home in America. And so they're looking forward to retirement and seeing loved ones and friends again and, and seeing what God had next for them. Well, they learned while they're on the ship heading back to the U.S. that President Teddy Roosevelt was also on the ship, but he wasn't serving as a missionary in Africa. He had been in Africa on a safari hunting trip. And so when it came time for the ship to dock in the New York Harbor, they were in the, let's just say it, the cheap accommodations. And so they were some of the last ones off the ship. And as they came up where they could see the harbor and people, here's what they saw. There were still a few hundred people and they were still applauding and there was President Roosevelt. He was being ushered away and people are celebrating, a band is playing and, and there's a sign that says, welcome back, Teddy. And others are going, did you get a big one, Teddy? And they stopped and when the commotion calmed down, they looked around and there, there, there wasn't anyone. No one came to welcome them home. And Henry's wife just started to cry and express anger. She said, honey, we've been serving God for over 25 years. We haven't been home in 25 years. No one? Nothing? Her husband's eyes welled up with tears and he smiled and he put his arm around his wife and he said, honey, remember, we're not home yet. Are you looking forward to that heavenly home? This earthly home is temporary. It is absolutely the most important thing in the world that we know Jesus as our savior who died and rose again to pay for the penalty for our sin. And when we receive him into our life and become a follower of his, he will guide us through this life that we refer to in Hebrews chapter 12 as a race until he brings us to the finish line where there will be a welcome home celebration in heaven. So, Last week, we looked at run with endurance. Let's do a quick review of last week, and that'll take us into this week on part two of our series on perseverance. Hebrews 12, one through four, last week, we looked at some disciplines to help us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. The first discipline was to run free, to get rid of any weight, anything that gets in the way, anything that slows us down of becoming more like Jesus. And then run forgiven, especially that sin that so easily entangles us. If you were here last week or if you watched online, you might remember that I had a big bowling ball chained to my ankle. Uh, I'm, I was held captive, so to speak. And there is for each of us, because we live in this battle, but as we'll see at the end of the service today, the battle belongs to the Lord. There's this battle that Satan wants us not to follow Jesus, to give in to the temptation to sin. And sometimes we just find ourselves captive to something that's really tripping us up. So we have to run forgiven. And then finally to run focused. When we feel weary and we feel like giving up and it's, it's too hard to be a Christ follower, we need to keep our eyes focused, to run focused with our eyes on Jesus who suffered and died. He endured the cross for the joy he knew would be his afterwards. And you know what that joy is? To bring us home, to, to guide us through this life and to bring us to eternal life. So not only should we run with endurance, but today in part two of perseverance, we need to 
run with the Father. We're going to go back to Hebrews chapter 12, and we're going to focus on verses 5 through 11 as we learn to trust God, who is our loving Heavenly Father, and listen carefully, and he brings discipline into our lives. Now, the word discipline is used 10 times in the verses that we're going to use. And in the original language, there's a word, a Greek word, paideia. And paideia has some different meanings. And uh, so let me break that down for you. Basically, paideia, discipline, is the idea of raising a child with training, correction, and using punishment if necessary. Let's take a closer look. First of all, training. Training develops endurance, character, and confidence. Paul says in Romans 5, hey, we can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials. <laughs> I, don't, I don't often feel like rejoicing, do you? But he says that's what we need to do, for we know they help us develop endurance. Oh, and endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. Last week, we used the illustration of marathon runners hitting the wall, hitting the wall. Marathon runners have to train so that when they hit that wall around mile 18 to 20, somewhere in there, they don't give up. They don't quit. When you and I feel like quitting, like giving up, it's too hard. God will use training opportunities that he's put in our lives through discipline so that we might keep going. Here's the next definition. Correction. This is all about teaching the difference between right and wrong. The difference between right and wrong. In fact, in 2 Timothy 3, 16, it says that all scripture is inspired by God. It's useful to teach what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and teaches us to do what is right. Now, it's one thing to know something about the Bible. It's, it's another thing to actually read the Bible. But then ultimately, here's the question. Do we apply the Bible? Do we obey God's holy word? My wife and I have nine grandkids. Our youngest is going to be three next month. His name's Riggins, and several weeks ago, he's always at our house on Tuesdays, and we just have a great time together. And so he was showing this tendency to pick up the TV remote and try to operate it himself. You know what toddlers do, right? And so we had a talk with him. We said, Reagans, no, that's only for grandpa and grandma. You leave the remote alone. Uh, we thought that took care of it. And a few minutes later, my wife noticed from the kitchen looking into the living room, here's Reagans with the remote pointing it right at the, at the TV. And grandma Linda goes, Reagans, we told you. He takes the remote, foo, just flings it across the living room, thinking grandma won't really see. So we had to have another talk. He was not applying what we had told him he needed to do. So correction was needed, the difference between right and wrong. So how do you and I respond when we're corrected for doing something wrong? Let's look at the last definition, punishment. This is consequences for disobedience. Consequences for dis disobedience. Let me take you to the Old Testament to the story of David. If you've been around church or you've read Bible stories, you probably remember a story about the life of David. Grew up a shepherd boy and uh, he took care of lions and bears. And when he got a little bit older, basically he's still really, really a, sort of a, like, I, I would put him as a middle school kid. 
He takes on Goliath, the giant, and he kills the giant. And eventually he becomes king of Israel. And he's faithful and he's living most of the time the way God wanted him to live. But he still had this old sin nature, just like you and I do, even after we become a Christ follower. And so he gave in to this temptation. He noticed this beautiful woman named Bathsheba across the street bathing herself on a rooftop. And so he called his servants and had them go get her and bring her to his palace. And then he committed adultery with her. And she became pregnant. And to try to cover his sin, he sent Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, to the front line so he could be killed. Wow. So Nathan comes to him in 2 Samuel chapter 12 and confronts him with his sin and his disobedience. And David fesses up and he admits his sin. And Nathan tells him, God's gonna forgive you, but there's gonna be consequences, there will be punishment. First of all, the baby that you and Bathsheba are birthing is going to die. You're not gonna have peace with your enemies and you're not gonna have peace with family members. They're going to rebel. And so you might wonder if you know the whole story, you go to Psalm chapter 51 where, where David is crying out to God in his confession about adultery with Bathsheba. He goes, God, create in me a clean heart. Wash me from my sin. Make me whiter than snow. So you wonder, did God forgive him? Absolutely. But even when God forgives us, because he needs to use discipline in our lives, there sometimes, through punishment, there's consequences. But please understand, God's purpose in using punishment with his children, children are only those of us who are Christ followers, God's purpose is not to condemn and restore, excuse me, is not to condemn and destroy, but it's to restore and to correct. Did God correct David? Absolutely. In fact, we find in Scripture, Scripture describes David this way, that he was a man after God's own heart. So if you connect with that story, have hope. God forgives. So here's the question. How do you and I respond to the loving Father's discipline, whether it's training or correction or punishment? We get to choose how we respond to God when life is hard, when life is difficult, when life hurts, when life is tough. Now think about it. Oftentimes in our lives, there's something wrong that needs to be removed by our Heavenly Father. And we find ourselves wondering, can we trust him? Because it really, really hurts. And we go, God, are you gonna make it worse? Are you gonna cut off a finger or take something away from me? So the question is, how do we trust God enough to respond with gratefulness? There's really several ways that we can respond to the loving Heavenly Father's discipline. One way is that we reject it with a hard heart. I've met people in my lifetime who, when something wrong happened and they decided, well, God can't be a loving God, so I'm just gonna reject what's going on in life and I reject God. I have a hard heart. 
It might be, I accept God's discipline, but I'm gonna have self-pity. Ah, poor, poor me. Probably nobody else has to go through it like I do. Or we can accept it with resentment. Okay, God, I accept your loving discipline, but hey, I'm not gonna trust you as much anymore. Or we can accept it with gratefulness. Gratefulness. So here's the question we're gonna focus on. Why should we respond to God's loving discipline with gratefulness? With gratefulness. I've heard it said that if God had an iPhone, he has your picture on his home screen because he loves you and me as Christ followers so much, he views us as his children. And so when he brings discipline into our lives, that's a sign that he accepts us and loves us as his own children. Let's go to the text, Hebrews 12, verses five through eight. And have you forgotten the encouraging words God spoke to you as his children? He said, and here the author of Hebrews is actually quoting Proverbs chapter three, verses 11 and 12. He goes on, he says, my child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline. Don't give up when he corrects you. For the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes each one that he accepts as his child. A good earthly father will use training, correction, and punishment if needed. I mean, imagine this. An earthly father is out on the driveway teaching his three-and-a-half-year-old to ride a bike. Well, first of all, the training aspect. And, and so the training aspect might include, you know, training wheels, although now I know they have the bikes where the kids just use their feet, kind of Fred Flintstone style, but that ages me so bad, half of you have no idea what I just said. So there's a training period when a dad is teaching his son or daughter to ride a bike. And then there's correction. Because the dad says, now only on the driveway. Don't go near the street. But what little kid can resist? It's so easy to go. And so then the dad has to jump in, intervene, and say, no, that's wrong. That's not safe. I'm going to correct you and get you back on the course where you need to be. And then finally, there's the punishment phase of discipline. Son, why did you intentionally ride your bike and drive over your little brother? There's gonna be consequences. No bike for a week or whatever, or until the parents are going crazy and they go, isn't it time to give our kid his bike back, right? So, the author of Hebrews is reminding us that the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes each one he accepts as his child. So he accepts us and he loves us. He goes on in verse seven and he says, as you endure this divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as his own children. Who ever heard of a child who is never disciplined by its father? Unfortunately, in today's world, we hear of that. In fact, I'm gonna comment on that in just a minute. If God doesn't discipline you as he does all of his children, it means that you are illegitimate and are not really his children at all. Over the years, uh, having spent many years in youth ministry, I worked with many, many teenagers, many kids who came from broken homes or had no father in the picture, 
or they had an abusive father. And I can't tell you how many times I would have a 15, 16 year old guy or girl say to me, Byron, I'm so jealous of my friends who had a father who disciplined them. I wish I had had that. I never had a loving father. And can I just address the elephant in the room? There's probably a number of you here today. It's very, very difficult. It's a huge struggle for you to actually picture God being a loving heavenly father because you've had a bad experience with your earthly father. God understands that, but God is God. God's the perfect loving heavenly father. In fact, can I just say a sign of spiritual growth is when we trust God so much that we're grateful for his discipline. In fact, let's go to Romans chapter eight, verses 14 through 18. For all who are led by the spirit of God are children of God. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Okay, I gotta stop and say, thank you, worship band. I wanna remind all of you that what, what happens here at Prairie Heights when, when I give the staff the direction I'm going with a message, and they saw that I was going to use this scripture, they chose the song, No Longer a Slave. No longer a slave to fear, I'm now a child of God. Thank you for reminding us of the truth. And when it says, now we call him Abba, Father, Abba in the original language is the vernacular for Daddy. In fact, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus is praying prior to being betrayed and starting his journey to the cross, he prays, Abba, Father. In other words, Daddy, if there's any way that this cup could pass before me, but not my will, but yours. Doesn't that give us heart to realize that Jesus even sometimes called God the Father, Daddy? We can run into our Father, Daddy's arms, for his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children, and since we are children, we are heirs. In fact, to get together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share his glory, we must also share his suffering. Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. Someday, for those of us who are his children, Christ followers, when we get to heaven, it's glory. We're part of God's family. But till then, in the same way that Jesus suffered here on earth, the reality of a broken, fragile, sinful world is that we're gonna suffer also. But the next time you're experiencing that, picture yourself as a little kid running to God and saying, Daddy, Daddy. Hold me. Let's go to this, the second reason why we need to respond to God's discipline with gratefulness. Here it is. God's discipline means that we have something to learn. We still have something to learn. Back to the passage, verses 9 and 10 of Hebrews 12. Since we respected our earthly fathers who disciplined us, shouldn't we submit even more to the discipline of the father of our spirits and live forever? For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years, doing the best they know how, they knew how. 
But God's discipline is always good for us. You see that? Let me read it again. God's discipline is always good for us that we might share in his holiness. Newsflash, God's biggest concern for you and me is not that we're happy. The world around us says, oh, I just want to be happy. Even when we are trying to guide our kids, too many people are going, oh, I, I just want you to be happy. God is not the happy God. He's the joyful God. It's not about earthly happiness. It's about having joy because he loves us. We're his children. And no matter what, he has the best in mind for us. This means he wants us to be holy. Peter says, as he quotes God, hey, I'm holy. I want you to be holy. So that means most of the time you and I still have something to learn. But he won't leave us hanging. He won't, he won't make us try to figure it out ourselves. His spirit within us, if we're a Christ follower, will guide us. In fact, let's go to Philippians 1.6. Here Paul says, I am certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ returns. God's at work in us, helping us want to obey him and show us how to live and to give us the power to do so. But sometimes we still have something to learn. I have a friend named Paul. He's my age been a pastor for many, many years. He's retired primarily due to health issues. He's had to have numerous surgeries, but his biggest challenge in life is Parkinson's disease. And it has ravaged his body to the point when you see him, his, especially his arm and his head, it, it just moves uncontrollably. His life is very different than mine or than most of yours. As I've sat with him and we've built a friendship and I've prayed with him and for him, I've said, Paul, where's your heart? And I remember him telling me, well, to be honest, I find myself saying, God, why? I've been faithful. Why now at the end of my life? Why does this have to happen? And sometimes I find myself really dealing with depression. But then I have to remember that God is good all the time. And so I say to God, perhaps you still have something for me to learn. So God, I trust you. And because I can trust you, I have hope because of who you are in my life. Do you and I have something to learn? We can trust God. His purpose is always good for us. What do you and I have to learn? Maybe is it trusting God no matter what? Obeying his word? Patience for God's timing? Compassion for others? Being joyful? Forgiving someone else? Being content in this world? What do we have to learn yet? The third and final reason. God's discipline will help us become more like Jesus. Let's be grateful for that because God's discipline will help us become more like Jesus. Back to the passage, Hebrews 12, 11. No discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. It's painful. But afterwards, there's going to be this peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained this way. Peaceful harvest. Good things can come out of it. As many of you have probably experienced, what we don't see in our pain often is God's hidden purpose. He may be protecting us from worse harm. He may want to use the endurance that we're developing and learning 
so that when we experience God's comfort, we in turn can comfort others who are going through something similar. As we become like Jesus, that's what happens. God's ultimate purpose is that we become like Jesus. Let's go back to Paul, Romans 8, 28 and 29. For we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God. A lot of people glance over this or they misunderstand it. They go, oh yeah, doesn't God say somewhere in the Bible that God's always gonna make sure things go good for us? Mm -mm. He says, God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Because remember, God's not trying to make us happy. He's trying to make us holy, to be more like Jesus. For God knew his people in advance and he chose them to be like his son so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. The more we become like Jesus, the more we impact the world around us. The more we let God in his love discipline us, the more we're gonna become holy. It's amazing how many years have already gone by since 9-11. I read the story of a man by the name of L. Marchand and his wife, Rebecca. L. Marchand was on United Flight 175 when it crashed into the South Tower. His wife said, it was no mistake that my husband, L, was on that plane where everybody lost their lives. Because you see, the rest of the story, and I want to tell you something, she told this story on the Today Show. Millions of people heard this. She says, years ago, my husband Al and I were not Christ followers. My husband Al was a policeman, but he didn't want to do that all the time, so he worked as a bartender, and it was at the bar where he learned about Jesus. Because the cleaning crew that would come into the bar, while they were cleaning, they were listening to sermon tapes, message tapes, by Greg Laurie. And if you've seen the movie, The Jesus Revolution, it's the story of what God did in and through Pastor Greg Laurie. And so Al Marchand is hearing these messages and that got him interested in truth. And soon after, he became a Christ follower, as did his wife, Rebecca. And so then he felt this calling four years later to become a flight attendant. And if you asked him, why did you want to become a flight attendant? And he said, because I love Jesus and I want people to know Jesus. In fact, I want to be a flight attendant so that if I'm ever in a plane where the plane is going down and there's 30 to 40 seconds left before impact, there's people who need Jesus, who need to go to heaven rather than to hell. And so I'm going to be the one as a flight attendant. I'm, I'm going to grab the intercom and I'm going, okay, everybody, listen up. God loves you. Jesus died on the cross to pay for your sins and rose again to prove he can do it. Put your faith in Jesus now as we get ready for the end. But if you know Jesus, it's the beginning. So his wife, Rebecca, said, I'm in no way do I doubt that my husband shared the gospel of Christ on that plane before it hit the tower. God used it. Millions of people heard the story, and at his memorial service, over 100 people put their faith in Jesus. They said yes to Jesus. And for some of you here today, can I just say, this might be your day. This might be the day when you realize you need to say yes to Jesus.
because your eternal future is at stake. Are you and I becoming like Jesus? Jesus came to give his life for us. He wants us to impact the world around us. But to do that, we must run this race with endurance and we need to run with our heavenly father. Some of you might wonder, hey, why is it at times it feels like I'm running, I'm trying to run this race of life with endurance, but I feel so alone. Listen, the heavenly father, the loving heavenly father, God, he's not in the stands watching us. He wants us to grab onto him. He's on the track with us. Did you notice the world around Derek was saying, you don't have to do this, you can quit, you don't have to keep going. And Derek's father's doing, no, no, I got him. This is my child, we're gonna finish together. That's what God will do for you and me. He's got us. We run with endurance. We run with our loving Heavenly Father. And when we hit the finish line in heaven someday, mm, celebration, welcome home, child of God. Let's pray. Loving Father, Uh, Your word is powerful, it's true, your word is supernatural, and so I simply close this time, Father, by asking your Holy Spirit to use your power, first of all, to, to help anyone here who is not yet a Christ follower to say yes to you today. Let them get in the race and help them keep their eyes on Jesus. And Father, each and every one of us right now, I believe we connect. We we can think of a way that we are struggling to run with endurance. This coming week, may we trust your spirit to give us the faith we need to keep our eyes on Jesus. May we trust you with so much faith that we'll be grateful for the discipline you bring into our lives to help us be like Jesus. Father, thanks for loving us. We look forward to living with you forever someday. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. A special thanks to those of you who give generously to Prairie Heights. It is because of you that this ministry is possible. You can click the link in the description to give now or visit prairieheights.com slash give for more information. And if you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe, share it with your friends, or even take a screenshot and share it on your social media and tag us at Prairie Heights. Thank you for listening.